an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Bet the board. What do you mean you don't bet? I mean, I don't bet. You know, I don't care. I don't. I never have. I never will. Yeah, right. I bet you 20 bucks I can get you gambling before the end of the day. You owe me 15 grand, pal. Pay him. Pay that man his money. It's the Bet the Board podcast. God likes me. He really, really likes me. In the end, I wound up right back where I started. I could still pick winners, and I could still make money for all kinds of people back home. And why mess up a good thing? Here's Payne Insider and Todd Furman. Welcome into the Bet the Board podcast, powered by FanDuel Sportsbook. College football week three as the national landscape begins to take shape in the wake of some seismic upsets last weekend. I'm your host, Todd Furman, joined as always by my steam colleague and co-host, the one, the only pain insider. But before we get to pain, this is the perfect time to remind you to go to FanDuel.com backslash bet the board. Sign up for all sorts of lucrative new user bonuses in states where it applies, whether it's a $1,000 free bet, whether it's a 20% free roll. FanDuel has a myriad of ways to get your bankroll into the business of making money this fall. Go there, use the promo code bet the board and take full advantage. Payne, I want to know what you thought of what you saw unfold last Saturday in college football. And if you want, we can let you sidestep the uh, debacle at the Doak. There doesn't need to be a sidestep, but that was a terrible loss and falls on the coaching staff. Adam Fuller has not been good for a season plus now. And my feeling is if him and Norvell weren't so close and there was a little more resources, that's a fireable event. And Mike Norvell went into that presser after and claimed that they were in a defense that they were not in (laughs) and kind of covering for Fuller. So that was interesting there. And, And that's a game that's on Mike Norvell as well. I mean, my understanding was early in the week, practice was absolute dog crap. You had the, the, the Florida guys who, you know, four stars thinking that, you know, they competed with Notre Dame and that this was going to be an easy one. And I think that mindset was really on the coaches as well. I mean, what is Mike Norvell doing? I, I, I understand that Mackenzie Milton might give you the higher floor or, or I'm sorry, the higher ceiling. And he lets recruits see that this is the offense that you want to run. That isn't just uh, a ground and pound game with your quarterback running, but those are games you have to get out there and win. You know, you can't lose that game. You, you can't, you, you got to put Jordan Travis in there, make a low variance game 
run the football, win by 17, and get out of Dodge. So that was not very good from Florida State and its coaching staff. Yeah, this is... Oregon. Oh, God. Ohio State. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I think that was a really game effort. I mean, we saw Tim DeRuiter give Stroud some issues early in that game. Chris DeBall and the offensive line enforced their will. The question marks we had about Ohio State's defense was more in the secondary, but they got bullied up front in the trenches. And so, you know, give give credit to some of the guys that were projecting Ohio State's defense outside the top 25 at the beginning of the season. They were bang on accurate. Stroud still making some mistakes for a guy who's starting his second game, but I thought there were stretches there where he looked fantastic. All three receivers went over 100 yards receiving, but he's still throwing the ball a little bit high, still making some young quarterback mistakes, but, you know, give all the credit in the world to Oregon there. You go on the road, and I think we discussed this, right? You lost two days of prep and rest, another day traveling. Your all-world defensive lineman is out. You're down two linebackers. You did it shorthanded, and so Oregon deserves all the credit in the world for that You one. know, honestly, and, you know, I'll eat a little bit of crow here. I've been critical of Mario Cristobal and his ability to get his team focused and ready to go each and every week during the season. I, I can't take shots at anything he's done recruiting-wise to build up that talent level at Oregon and employ a brand of football that you talked about. You just don't see on the West Coast going out there and trying to be hard-nosed, play with that physical swagger of sorts that we saw from David Shaw when Stanford was at the peak. Didn't think that kind of effort was in the cards, so I have to give Oregon a ton of credit uh thought ohio state's offense could kind of right the ship but as you kind of mentioned there defensively we knew the secondary was a problem did not think that oregon was going to be able to run the football for seven yards a pop so some interesting games there that'll shake up the landscape obviously uh did want to touch on notre dame but we'll break them down for their upcoming matchup against purdue and you know honestly it may make the most sense for us to get right into the thick of things as we have a lot of land to cover and uh, we can do so right in your backyard, Payne, with a 12 o'clock Eastern kickoff where the suddenly spry Spartans come in to Hard Rock Stadium. It's Miami, a six and a half point home favorite in the heat of the South Florida day. Total in this game sits at 56 and a half at FanDuel Sportsbook. And Payne, when you look at Mel Tucker's bunch, clearly the offense has been a, a welcome fre- breath of fresh air and wins over Northwestern. And of course, last weekend's FCS member Youngstown State. But I think when you try and dive into this game, the biggest matchup to try and identify how things are going to go will be that Michigan State offensive line paving the way for Kenneth Walker against the Miami defensive line that, hey, look, we'll throw out the Alabama game. A lot of teams are going to make uh, Alabama is going to make a lot of teams look bad, but what do we expect from the Canes up front against Michigan State's road graders? So let's let the listeners know what the heck we're doing this week. We are going to change some things up. Todd posted a poll on what was the fifth game you would like to hear us break down. We're going to discuss that game, obviously, but we wanted to talk about more games. So what we're going to do is six games today. The first four are going to be like one key factor or the biggest thing that we think plays a role in the outcome of the game. And then we'll have deep dives for Penn State, Auburn and Alabama, Florida. So that's what we're doing here. I think this is probably the right way to approach as people want more games. And so this felt like a week where there was a lot of those ones kind of on the cusp of, of making the cut or not. And so I think we just said, hey, let's kind of discuss a f- couple of these. This game, I think, is is interesting. 
when you look at Michigan and Miami, you dig into, you know, things past the power number and some things that stand out that are impactful, but trying to always gauge the the largest factor can be a little bit difficult. And I think you hit this perfectly. One of the factors is certainly the heat of Miami. Have you have you seen the the weather projected for this uh, game? It's not good if you're training in northern climates. Now, I know Michigan's not exactly cool during the summer, but it ain't South Florida heat in the middle of September. It's a noon kickoff, 88 degrees, 70% humidity, which means it's you know like over 100. Uh, so I think Michigan State's depth is is going to be tested. Do I have here. to ask a dumb question, Payne? The other, do, do we think Miami would be yeah. dumb enough to come out and sport their all-black jerseys to try and get the swag back in the heat of the day? Or can we at least assume that the program is going to come out in all whites and force Michigan State to re- wear their Kelly greens and let the heat beat wear down on them as the day goes on? You would hope, but I got to tell you. I do not spend my weeks figuring out the uniform choice of, of the Miami. Maybe you should. So Handicapping am, intangible. I'm, I'm not aware of that. <laughs> so I, I, the heat is obviously going to be a factor. I think, you know, the speed. You mentioned Mel Tucker. You know, he has a DC in Scotty Hazleton, and they've fully transitioned to a 4-2-5 this offseason because he thought after, like, self-scouting last year's team, which had still you know, some of D'Antonio's fingerprints on it, that the 4-3 was just really slow. So you had a change of formation on paper, which makes you believe Sparty can play faster, but is it enough to to handle Miami's athletes? You know, this isn't Northwestern or, or Youngstown. Those are two questions that are pretty big. But I came away thinking that the biggest factor is obviously Michigan State's offensive line against Manny Diaz's defensive front. And last season, it was an absolute cluster F. <laughs> up front for Sparty. I mean, they were projecting to have like 125 starts back, but by the time injuries and opt-outs and defections and you know, guys just flat out quitting, one starter actually was back. Michigan State's offensive line finished 124th in line yards, 124th in stuff right allowed, and 118th in power success rate. They had two rushing touchdowns all season. None of them came from running backs, <laughs> so that's how bad – Michigan State's offensive line was but you have you know a new year uh, a better understanding of the system you've had some transfers come in there's been a buy-in to the coaching staff and you've actually had normal off-season workout programs where guys can get into the weight room and so suddenly you have eight guys with starting experience and I think because of that Sparty's O-line has been damn good so far even if Northwestern's down Todd right like the one thing regardless of talent it's it's kind of tough to bully a Pat's Fitzgerald yep. defense and you know, Sparty put up 325 rushing yards, their most since 2014. You know, they went out last week as they should and dominated Youngstown. I believe PFF gave Sparty's offensive line the second best overall blocking grade of the week. But what is interesting here is, to me, Northwestern can, you know, what they've done so far is they've they've handled this situation. You know, they've been successful on 57% of rushing plays. That's 14% above the national average. They had 9.6 yards per rush with eight explosives against a Pat's Fitzgerald defense. Like that to me is, is pretty good so far. But there's still some issues with allowing some havoc and some negative plays. You know, Northwestern stuffed 23% of runs at or behind the line of scrimmage. If you extrapolate that out for a full season, you know, that put Michigan State's offensive line outside the top 100 again in that category. And Manny Diaz, that's kind of his philosophy on defense, right? Like, 
He wants guys to play on the other side of the line of scrimmage. He's going to blitz. He's going to shoot gaps. You know, it's it's basically get upfield by any means necessary. Even in a down year last year, Miami finished top 10 in both havoc and tackles for loss. So, you know, we know the offensive line for Sparty's improved. I think we're going to find out how much. We'll find out if the big guys up front wear down in the heat. Maybe there's, you know, uh, a rotation. I know there's been a discussion of going with a rotation of linemen this week to combat that heat. You know, but if Sparty can run the ball with Walker and Simmons and it makes Peyton Thorne's life, I think, you know, substantially easier here. And if there is improvement up front, I think they hang within this number. But the number to me says Michigan State's the side here. And I know it opened eight some places. A seven flashed yesterday, did not last this morning. It's a really, really interesting game here. But I think if Michigan State's able to run the ball, they're going to be able to stay within this. Number. And I was going to say, you talk about the number, and that was actually where I wanted to go before we close the book on this game. This would mark the third straight week that we've seen money come in against Miami uh, in a game. Obviously, week one against Alabama, they opened as low as two touchdowns. That number we know ballooned out of control, and Miami was never in the game. Last week, uh, we saw Miami open as a nine and a half point favorite against Appalachian State. Number actually closed a juice seven at some of the sharper shops. And I don't think Miami ever had a chance against the Mountaineers to run away and hide. So this may be as much skepticism about what Manny Diaz is putting on the field week in, week out, uh, as it is buying into Michigan State's hot start with dominant performances against semi-inferior foes. Under on the win total at nine and a half to begin the season on Miami as well. So this is not a team that people in the know and that influence a market are as high on. And it it just always seems the last few years that there is just this difference between how pros feel the Miami Hurricanes program is versus, you know, I guess the national media, right? Everyone wants Miami to be back. Everyone wants them in the limelight. They're a team at least across the country that has a decent following, even though the, the, the local fan base isn't all that loyal. They do have a national brand. And so it just seems like we're kind of pushing this forward. But Manny Diaz is not a great coach. Good defensive mind. Let's see ultimately, right? You went out, played Bama tough. App State dominated the game, you know, in the trenches, which was a little nerve wracking to see. And certainly Miami was able to accrue some pressure on Alabama. But the one thing that we said was coming into the Alabama game, the defensive ends were a little bit of an issue in camp, having trouble setting the edge. The depth at defensive end is a little bit of a problem. The linebacker core is a little bit of a problem. We're moving safeties down there for speed. There's some injuries at linebacker. So this will be interesting. If Sparty can enforce their will in the trenches on the offensive side and they're able to run the ball and be multidimensional with Thorne throwing the football, this game gets real interesting. Would have been nice to steal an outright win last week from App State. Let me tell you that much as far as the win total is concerned. But alas, we move on. And from a win total perspective, rooting for Michigan State to pull off the outright upset. All right, from South Florida into another college football hotbed in Norman, Oklahoma, where it's the Sooners welcoming in historic rival Nebraska. You're looking at Oklahoma, a 22-point favorite at FanDuel Sportsbook. Total in this game sits at 62. These two proud programs, or at least one proud program, one trying to resurrect its legacy, have played 86 times between 1912 and 2010. We know it'll be the 50-year anniversary of the game of the century. Oklahoma with a marginal seven-game lead in this particular series. But clearly, when you look at this Nebraska team, 
Lost the season opener against Illinois, bounced back against Fordham and Buffalo. So we've seen their defense at least rise to the occasion. Meanwhile, Oklahoma, in the wake of almost blowing the game against Tulane, they rebounded with a 76-0 thumping of Western Carolina last week. For Sooner fans, maybe the most promising part of that game is how good Caleb Williams looked. A lot of the people I talked to around that program really believe he's got it more buttoned up than Spencer Rattler and arguably has a higher ceiling, which is scary to think about. But Payne, when you look at this Oklahoma offense, it's no surprise under Lincoln Riley's leadership that this team wants to chuck it around the yard. And what we've seen through two games is from an offensive success rate, they're doing it extremely well through the air, potentially putting Nebraska's defense on notice, and we'll see what the black shirts can bring to the table. Yeah, that that's that's the big question. Now, obviously, Adrian Martinez has to play well. You know, he's it's a big step up in competition for him from the last two weeks, and he needs to protect the football and not fumble this game away like he's been prone to do. And Scott Frost needs to devise a game plan with some variance where he's able to match scores if needed. And Nebraska just needs to be buttoned up on special teams, too. I mean, that that's what's so weird about this team. You know, you, you're looking through the last three games. They've had a punt return blunder in each of them. The field goal kicker's been a train wreck. 33 for 35 last season on all kicks. He comes back. He's missed three of five field goals, two of 12 PATs already this season. So Connor Culp needs to get it together. Huskers need to clean up some things in the penalty department. Nine last week, it took 20 points off the board. So they have to do the little things well here to not get boat raced. But you you lined it up perfectly with the biggest factor, and it's if Nebraska is going to cover the 22 and a half. And what I'm actually looking forward to seeing is Spencer Rattler and his receiver group. You have Mims and you have Hazelwood against Nebraska's secondary. Lots of hype, obviously, coming into the season for, for Rattler, Mims, and Hazelwood. We're throwing out the Western Carolina data point. I, I don't care what you do against the, the 232nd best team in the country. And so far, the only data point that matters is against Tulane. And Rattler was poor. Three turnover-worthy throws, an 83 passer rating, forced balls into coverage, didn't play within the scheme of the offense, something we talked about last year with how effective he was when he got the ball out two and a half seconds or less versus when he tried to improvise. There was also a lot of hype this offseason about Nebraska's defense, right? And I think they have improved, but how much? The secondary is returning three super seniors. You have also a second-team All-Big Ten corner in Cam Taylor-Britt, who turned down the NFL to return to school. But the only Power 5 offense Nebraska's defense faced was Illinois. And we saw Arter Sitikowski, who wasn't even supposed to play in this game, drop back 17 times and churn out a 93% adjusted. Already look good, man. Already look good. Filling in for Brandon Peters in the it, season it, opener. Two touchdowns. Yeah. I mean, I, where did that come from? So obviously, you know, you play Fordham and Buffalo back-to-back weeks. It makes Nebraska's coverage unit look great. Top 15 in the country. <laughs> but the only Power 5 offense Nebraska's faced is Illinois. They put up a positive 0.16 EPA per pass. So I think that is the matchup to watch, and I think it determines who covers. I don't think Nebraska has a chance to pull off the upset here. But you have ne- Nebraska's veterans in the secondary against Spencer Rattler through the air, and I think that's that's interesting to look at in this matchup, and I think ultimately that's what's going to determine the cover. If you can kind of limit those explosives... And that's why all those guys came back. That'll be the key to covering this game. But uh, the number right now, 22 and a half, not a ton of movement at this point. And so it would indicate that Nebraska's defense might be able to limit the explosives and keep some things in front. 
Yeah, this was a game, too, during uh, the summer months that you saw Nebraska catching 18. So you've seen the market adjust a little bit in the wake of Nebraska's loss against Illinois through that key number of 21. But as you brought up, fascinating to see no movement uh, on the marquee game. Big noon kickoff, 11 o'clock central. Last thing on this game, Payne, and I know you and I have both been critical of Spencer Rattler, as has a lot of the Oklahoma fan base. What do you need to see from him before you'll fully buy in in terms of him taking that next step and being a quarterback that a lot of people have talked about as being Lincoln Riley's next great and a potential first rounder in the National Football League. And he's still young. You just want to see a little bit more consistency. You want to, and I don't, I don't know him personally, but you know when you kind of see his mannerisms and his actions, and he was on a television show in high school, and you're like, man, this you know, kind of a fuck. But I, <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't, you're hoping that the maturity stuff picks up. You know, you kind of just see him walk into the game, and it's just, it's just not him, right? I mean. Kayvon Thibodeau's on the sidelines wearing like $1,200 shades. It just kind of is what it is at this point in college football. But, he, you know, he rolls into the stadium and it's just like, yeah, no teammates are around him. You know, when you're making that kind of money on the NIL stuff, it's like, are you taking care of the rest of the guys around you, which is going to be needed? It doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, cash handouts. But like when you're going out to eat, when you're going out to the bar, like, are you picking these things up? And if you're not, what does that mean for the cohesion in that locker room? And so that's something as sports bettors where information is going to play a larger role moving forward with the current setup of college football. But he just needs to be more consistent on the field, needs to play within the offense a little bit more, limit the mistakes. I mean, against Tulane, again, you know, you see him come out and he's trying to throw the ball into triple coverage. Thinks he's Dan Marino, like trying to fit balls in there. Like, I, you know, just play within the system. I think you'll be fine here. Maybe get a little bit of help from the ground game. But, you know, I just I think it's upstairs for him. That's that's the biggest hurdle that he needs to, to, to cross. Hey, I mean, honestly, you see it all the time with some of these kids that have all the physical tools in the world. If you don't have it between the years and you can't display some of that maturity, it's always going to hold you back. And we'll see if Rattler can continue to make those strides and become the face of Oklahoma football. He's going to need to be if they're going to win the Big 12 and have a chance to at least compete for a national championship, something that's eluded them since Lincoln Riley took over. Uh, from a game on paper that doesn't appear to be that competitive to one of the more fascinating matchups in in Bloomington, Indiana on Saturday. Payne, Cincinnati goes on the road to take on the Hoosiers. This game was scheduled way back in 2014, long before Luke Fickle was the head coach of Cincinnati. More on that in a second. And before Tom Allen took over in any capacity at Indiana. You're looking at the Bearcats now, a four-point road favorite at FanDuel Sportsbook. This total is down a touch from the open to 50. The first question I have to ask you, we know Luke Fickle is one of the more buttoned-up guys, but it's a logical connection to make, knowing that Mike Bo the athletic director at USC was also the same guy that hired Fickle as head coach at Cincinnati. How easy or difficult is it for coaches and players to block out some of the distractions that are inevitably swirling around the program now? Well, those distractions just happened this week, and I don't know what Luke Fickle is going to do to address the team. Is he just going to avoid it? Is he going to sit everyone down? I don't. I don't know that approach, but I absolutely love his quote. And the quote <laughs> I have was, to imagine. I don't talk. To I was going to say I, I barely talk to my own family during the season, and that is a quote that I adhere to myself. <laughs> so Luke and I during football season are one of the two same. kindred spirits, so, apparently. I mean, Yes. And so, I mean, I just, I, I don't know how he's handling the situation. Did he address it immediately as soon as the firing happened, you know, in that, in that players meeting? Did he say, Hey, I'm not going anywhere. 
or is he not disgusted at all? Now, I think the game at hand here is obviously one of the two very important ones for Cincinnati. As a G5 team, you need to win these games to be even in consideration for the playoff. So these are the games that they've had circled from the offseason. So you would think the focus is there. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, this trip to Indiana and then a trip to South Bend in a couple of weeks, if you're able to win those two games, suddenly the biggest landmine remaining in front of you appears to be UCF in the latter portion of the AAC schedule. But to get to that point, you obviously have to take care of business first and foremost. And I think if you're Cincinnati and you're going into this game, maybe, I don't want to say you're more confident now, but you're probably not as concerned as you were about Michael Penix coming into the season. When you look at Penix so far this year, guy's been sacked three times for a loss of 22 yards, hasn't really shown the mobility we've grown accustomed to. Last week, yes, you can be blinded by the dominant scoreline Indiana produced against Idaho, but Penix didn't throw the ball downfield at all. He was just 11 of 16 for 68 yards. I mean, you and I have been extremely critical of Indiana, even last year when we loved him, that this team showed very little balance. It was all throwing the football downfield because you didn't have much of a ground game to lean on. Now, one thing, when you look at Michael Penix, he's suffered season-ending injuries a couple of times. The third game of the season in 2019, threw for 286 yards and three touchdowns in a lot against Michigan State. Last year against Michigan, came back and was dynamic in 2020. So you wonder if he now he has the confidence in his body to go out there and perform. But this is no small feat, pain going up and attacking a Cincinnati defense. Dusting off the cobwebs and getting in form is certainly needed when you know you've spent the entire offseason focusing on the rehab and not necessarily the chemistry with the players around you. And so game three, we may see an uptick here. Now the market is saying otherwise. And for our listeners, when we broke down Iowa last week, we actually grazed over Indiana and their problems in the process. And so that is the key factor for this game, and it's Indiana's offensive line. It has been a problem for a while, and it's not just a leak, right? Like, there's a hole there, and it's it's the size of the Grand Canyon at this point. And it's easy to say, like, ah, you know, two-game two sample. But the unit wasn't good last year either, and the problem looks even worse this season. Iowa's defensive line obviously I think is better than we thought it would be coming into the season. That was kind of the question mark is what would Iowa's defensive line be? We knew the secondary was elite. We knew the linebackers were great. It was like, you know, how are we replacing guys up front? Hawkeyes were able to pressure Indiana on nearly 40% of dropbacks. Penix had a 1.7 passer rating when pressured. Iowa's pressure was so constant that they only had to blitz 21% of snaps. All last week leading up to the Idaho game, Tom Allen was like saying how much time Indiana's O-line spent in the film room and how they had a much better week of practice and how he thought in the Iowa game they didn't actually have issues with assignments. They were just getting beat. Well, that kind of tells me if you're buttoned up and getting beat, your talent isn't good <laughs> enough. And so that makes me a little nervous. And so, you know, all week the focus was on the O-line and then Idaho comes to town and, and sure, as you alluded to, like Indiana wins in a blowout. But Idaho got pressure on more than 39% of dropbacks last week. Penix looked uncomfortable, as you alluded to, not at times, but pretty much throughout. He improved under pressure, but overall 4.3 yards an attempt against Idaho. And what I am seeing with Penix is a guy that's either throwing short to get the ball out quick. He's anticipating pressure that sometimes isn't quite there. You know, doesn't want to get hit on the knee, doesn't want to face contact. It's, it's been eight months. That's it. He's 
eight months removed from ACL surgery, and that's, you know, the same knees, had surgery on twice. Or he throws the ball deep so quickly to get rid of it, the receivers are only halfway through the routes. It's, it's basically a different kind of throwaway. Now, you get Cincinnati this week, and their strength is the defensive line. And through three weeks, PFF has them graded the number one D-line in pressure. Mijah Sanders is coming off an 11-sack season. The latest mocks have him going in round one in April. Cincinnati rotates six guys along the D-line. Fickle loves that unit's upside and depth. You have Malik Van and Curtis Brooks, Marcus Brown, Jawan Briggs, Jabari Taylor. Those are the other five guys along the D-line. All of those guys have been constant with their pressure. And I think the interesting part is to this, there has been some whispers and some rumors that Fickle's defenses are fantastic because they're all Fickles. And while Marcus Freeman has done a great job recruiting and he brought some buzz to Notre Dame, the concepts and the overall understanding of the vibe of the game, Marcus Freeman's been horrific for Notre Dame the first two weeks. And so you are starting to see that this this probably is fickle and there's not going to be a massive drop-off defensively without Marcus Freeman. And and here's the added kicker to this game. Indiana hasn't been able to run the ball for God knows how long, right? So if you don't have to worry about the run, and right now Hoosiers 118th in rushing success rate last season, they put up a negative .29 EPA per rush against Iowa Cincinnati already has the advantage up front, but if they can just pin their ear back, right? Pin their ears back and, you know, not have to worry about run or the threat of run. Penix is probably going to be under pressure a good bit here. It's something that we're definitely going to have to watch because Indiana, there's no doubt, needs to show some level of balance, realizing that Penix isn't that dual threat quarterback that we've grown accustomed to when he's completely healthy and out there. And I think when you look at Cincinnati, you may not have thought much of their schedule of opponents. A 42-7 win over Murray State really doesn't open your eyes. But suddenly, when Miami of Ohio has plenty of success moving the football against the Minnesota Golden Gophers in their second game, a team that Cincinnati led 35-0 at the half, you begin to connect the dots and go, okay, maybe that wasn't Miami of Ohio being down. It was Cincinnati being that good defensively. And this will be a higher level of physicality than uh, Indiana's seen, obviously since the Iowa game, but maybe a defense even better than what the Hawkeyes bring week in, week out. It's very possible. I mean, that defensive front is is absolutely loaded. And it's guys that have bought in. It's guys with talent. It's guys that fit the scheme. And they rotate six of them. This is really, even last year, as you kind of mentioned this, when when Indiana was the surprise team, something we pegged before the year, we went through the schedule, we would look at opponents, and we say the biggest question mark on this entire team is the offensive line. They just don't have balance. And I think that's what ultimately kept them from, you know, taking even another step and being an elite team. And I don't see, the, you know, an improvement there from from that part of the team, right? The offensive line, the ground game. It's basically Penix back there, passing the ball, not 100%, doesn't have the ability to use his legs as much as he had previously. And it's just a bunch of short passes. And I think when you have a defense like Cincinnati and a coach like Fickle who's going to identify this and scheme, this is the very reason we have seen this game come off the key number and we're now up to four. 
Alrighty, let's stay in this. Let's stay in the same state. Easy for me to say as we head from Bloomington up to South Bend, where it's the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, welcoming in another in-state program in the Purdue Boilermakers. Notre Dame paying a seven and a half point favorite at FanDuel Sportsbook. This total fifty-eight and a half, pretty much painted across the board. Purdue makes their first trip to South Bend since September of 2012. I'm going to butcher the name of the trophy, the Shillelagh, I believe. Uh, a rivalry renewed. Purdue has not beaten a top ten team on the road since beating number two Notre Dame 31-20 at Notre Dame Stadium on September 28th, Payne, 1974. The last win over an AP poll top 25 team on the road for Purdue, you ask? Wisconsin. What was your favorite baby food then? <laughs> Do you remember your favorite baby I, food? I was not even a twinkle in my parents' eyes, 1974. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't grace this fine earth until eight years later in 1982, wise ass. Um... But the last, I do remember kind of what I was doing back in 2003, the last time Purdue had a road win over an AP top 25 team, uh, I was probably ending up in drunken gutter somewhere in Middletown, Connecticut, trying to relive my glory. <laughs> when you look at this... People don't know you're a wild child. Uh, I don't think they, they see you buttoned up and corporate guy and on TV in a suit and <laughs> they have no idea. I am much more buttoned up now. I'm glad some of my fraternity hazing pictures uh, from back in the day haven't been widely circulated. I do say, and I'll tell anybody that'll listen, if some of the social media platforms were around, whether it was Twitter, whether it was Instagram or Facebook, had the same level of popularity and pictures were surfaced, there's a good chance I probably wouldn't have been able to be hired by any major outfit. And Bet the Board podcast, which we own and operate, would be the only bastion of hope that I ever would have had for professional success. It's a good bastion of hope, I must say. But I I, I, I agree with your sentiments there. Um <laughs> You're, you're, you're definitely, there, there's some skeletons in the closet. There's, there's no nothing doubt. wrong with passing out in the gutter after dollar beer night <laughs> or nearly getting pushed off of a loading dock in Oklahoma City or things along those lines in a shopping cart. I was trying to recreate. Yeah, that's, you know, that's a different story for a different day. We don't need to go there. What the hell were you doing in a loading I mean, dock? bars closed down at one o'clock. You're trying to create backdoor dealings, trying to buy, you know, a sixer or a 12 pack of beer, knowing that the package stores are shut down. So you got to go down to the loading dock to meet the bartender for a little cash transaction before you go back to the hotel. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you got to think gotcha. outside. Okay. Apologies. I, I took us off the left. Hey, outside the box. You got to be entrepreneurial sometimes, my friend. Um, Notre Dame, <laughs> when you look at the Fighting Irish, yes, they've started the season with two victories, had to outlast Florida State in overtime Labor Day weekend, and how to outlast Toledo, uh, despite their best efforts to spit the bit there last weekend. Clearly, Notre Dame has some issues, and one of their biggest issues, you kind of hinted at, uh, the Marcus Freeman coming in as defensive coordinator, they've already given up more big plays on the back end than they did the entire last year with Clark Lee, but... This offensive line, long been the trademark strength of a Brian Kelly coach team, is anything but. And Payne, I realized just watching it from the eye test, there were problems on the offensive line. I didn't realize how bad it actually was until I dug into some of the metrics. And, you know, I dug into this game for a bit. And we kind of had this approach again for some of these games. We want to cover more, more territory. There was a couple items in this game that, could have been the key factor. And after stressing about it for about 30 minutes, I said, what the hell am I doing here? So I shot Brad a text. His favorite team is obviously Notre Dame. He's close to the program. Which, he 100% knows which, this team. Inside by the now. way, I didn't mention it before. Impressive job from our man Brad Powers, who folks can check out uh, on our Bet the Board pregame show available on YouTube. 
Brad, for his first hit on the show, wears a hat that says play like a champion in the wake of Notre Dame outlasting Florida State. It was the most subtle troll job. Not sure if it was intentional, but I love the pettiness of all of it. And that's why it's important to have final cut. <laughs> that didn't make the that didn't make the show. It was just audio for the first week. So so when I shot Powers a note, he said Purdue's defensive line against Notre Dame's offensive line is the biggest factor in this game. Did mention a couple other things as I as I alluded to, but that was what stood out the most. And we knew Notre Dame's O line was extremely talented, but it was super young and it was inexperienced. They lost four starters along that line. They lost a depth guy in Dylan Gibbons, although they did win the Kane Madden sweepstakes, but he has been wildly disappointing in both run and pass blocking. But you're replacing four starters that are on NFL rosters. That is difficult to do no matter how well you recruit, and we've been banging that drum for a while now. Notre Dame's down to their third string left tackle for this Purdue game. The question becomes is if they're going to move their best in Jared Patterson, who plays center, out to left tackle to protect Cone's blind side and then shift uh, Zeke Carell from guard to center, which is arguably his more natural position. Let's see if there are some changes up front. Dame's O-line has not really created much push in the ground game. The young guys do look a little weak, which is to be expected. Notre Dame has a negative .37 EPA per rush against Florida State as a team. Kyron Williams, who is their bell cow back, he's a workhorse, had a 12% rushing success rate on first down runs against Toledo and 25% overall for the game. When Toledo played with a six-man box, Notre Dame averaged 1.7 a carry and an 11%. That's not very rate. good. That's not getting it done against six-man boxes. No. Notre Dame allowed some pressure against Toledo. And I get Toledo's got a very good defensive front for max standards. Absolutely. Let's not sugarcoat that. Cone and, and Buckner were basically under duress the entire game, right? 34% of dropbacks they were pressured. May not seem, you know, concerning, but Tommy Reese is, whether it's smartly calling more early down passes or realizing that he's not able to run as much, um, he's been at least decent in that 58% early down pass rate through two games. That's a 15% increase year over year. You know, you just want to figure out if he's gotten a little bit smarter as a play caller or if he's basically forced to do that because they're not able to run as well. Uh, but 34% pressure rate against a max school, regardless of how good they are, that can't happen. Coming into the season, when you look at the Purdue defensive front, that was going to be the best part of their defense. The boiler secondary, we did project for a little improvement, but the D-line is the best Purdue's had since Brahms been there. George Karlaftis, I mean, he's a bona fide stud. High four-star kid, top 60 lineman, could have went to virtually any Big Ten school he wanted. He's a disruptor, right? 11 pressures in two games. He's playing great against the run. Purdue likes to get some pressures from its linebackers, so we've seen you know Jalen Alexander and Jalen Graham help in that area. Purdue right now 20th in run-stop grade, so... You know, obviously things can change week to week. Anything can happen in a 60-minute sample. But on paper, this isn't a game where Notre Dame's finding balance and able to run. It's going to be on Jack Cohn throwing, you know, after a dislocated middle finger on the final drive of the Toledo game against an improved Purdue secondary. And that was the one thing that I went back and watched against Oregon State. You know, we thought Oregon State was going to be able to move the ball a little bit. Sure, they, they put 21 on the board, but I mean, Purdue secondary was decent allowed a negative 0.27 EPA per pass. I thought that was 
showing out pretty well. So if your front four and your front seven can stop the run and force Jack Cohn, who's going to be less than 100% here, to throw the football into an improved secondary, I think we have seen why this number opened a little short. And so when you look at the number at seven and a half, eight, it certainly says that Purdue's the side here. And these are always the interesting games for me, Todd. Either we find out that Notre Dame's just not any good and this number looks massive, or Notre Dame kind of figures some things out, they shift some parts along the offensive line, and you're buying Notre Dame kind of at the floor of their market. And those are always tough games for me to gauge. Well, I'll tell you one thing. If Notre Dame can't figure it out this week against Purdue's defensive front, it ain't going to get much easier for the Irish. Because you look at their upcoming schedule, they're going to get hit in the mouth by Wisconsin on the defensive side, and they're going to get hit in the mouth by the Cincinnati Bearcats. So I think this is going to be a tremendous litmus test to see if Notre Dame is trending in the right direction. You highlighted a lot of the moving pieces as far as their offensive line is concerned. Payne, I was blown away by you know the amount of Notre Dame beat writers and such that are already calling for a benching of Jack Cohn in favor of Tyler Buckner, given the, given the mobility he brings to the table and maybe a higher ceiling, even if he doesn't have that same veteran presence in the huddle uh, that Cohn does as a consummate vet. I think we're going to see that moving forward a little bit. I think we're going to see more Tyler Buckner kind of implemented into the system. He does provide a little bit more mobility and he obviously has a ton more upside and he's hopefully the future of Notre Dame football under center going to be fascinating to watch we'll get get a better gauge on exactly where Notre Dame is can they correct their problems or will these issues continue to linger before their schedule gets significantly more difficult speaking of more difficult we finally have a conference game in the SEC for conference heavyweight the Alabama Crimson Tide and when you look at this number here Alabama an overwhelming favorite for their trip to Gainesville to take on Florida You're looking at Alabama in this contest, a 14.5 point favorite, number as high as 15 in some shops. Uh, Total in this game at 59 at FanDuel Sportsbook. What we know about Alabama, win over Miami, win over Mercer. Okay, we can say what we want about it. Florida, very workmanlike in their wins as well over two in-state programs. Florida Atlantic, they don't get the cover, but they were the dominant side winning 35-14. And then against South Florida, probably could have scored 60 in that game before taking their foot off the gas. Payne, quarterback situation, it feels like Alabama, known commodity in Bryce Young, Florida much more unsettled trying to figure out if they're going to have two healthy weapons there in Emory Jones uh, and Richardson. The reality of this, though, is maybe it's Florida's defense and their potential to slow down Alabama's offense that we still haven't truly get tested with those new-look weapons. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a big question. And, you know, this is Bryce Young's first career road start. Obviously played on a... Massive stage to start the season against Miami, but that was basically a home game. Now it's 90,000 plus packed into the swamp. The sellout was announced more than a week before the game. So that place is going to be loud. What is interesting here, to this point in the week, betters are selling Alabama. And that's something that we haven't really heard over the years, right? There's a touch of Florida money that came in at open. We saw Pinnacle go from 15 down to 14, which is a key yesterday. And I I think it's selling Alabama because the first two games we've seen betters with influence sell the Gators, right? Take the points with both FAU and USF, and they were selling them in the offseason on the win total. So this feels like a little bit of a fade of 
of Alabama, which is odd. Our core number on the game, 13.5. I still didn't want to take 14.5 or better on Florida. Beating Miami doesn't look, obviously, as impressive, seeing them struggle in their opener against App State. Obviously, you know, Alabama wasn't the most buttoned up against Mercer last week, although it at least allows Saban to have some bulletin board material this week for his players. When I look at the matchup, I think it's probably pretty known and understood that Florida's defense has improved, but we're going to find out how much. I don't get the vibe. They're close to being all the way back. They haven't played an offense that we respect. FAU outside the top 85 in offensive efficiency. USF outside the top 120. This kind of feels like a feast or famine matchup here. You know, Todd Grantham's defense is one that likes to send pressure. 35% blitz rate last season. When he doesn't send pressure, the foundation of his defense is stunts and twists in, in games up front. That is one area that can give Alabama some trouble. It's the one thing I think when we talked about the top 10 last week was like, hey, sure, everyone's kind of anointing Alabama the the champion already, but they've kind of struggled up front in production. And so, you know, I think from an experience and chemistry standpoint, this is the worst Bama O-line that Todd Grantham's defense has seen while, you know, while he's been at Florida. You know, Miami and Mercer. Bryce Young's been pressured on 42% of his dropbacks in those games. Now, he's been absolutely in fuego. 132 passer rating, 16-yard, A dot, 75% adjusted completion percentage, five touchdowns, no picks. But I could see a situation where, you know, the swamp is just rocking and this Bama O-line still kind of figuring out that chemistry and cohesion struggles from time to time. And I think that's important because most teams' efficiencies obviously decline when they're throwing in known passing situations. For Bama, that dip is pretty large compared to, you know, years past with Tua and Mac. Right now, through two games, Bama's offensive success rate dips 27% when they're executing on standard downs versus known passing situations. On the back end, Grantham tries to confuse you with different looks, which can be difficult for, for young quarterbacks. You know, last year, if you look at some of his coverage schemes, cover zero, cover one, and cover two, roughly half the snaps let's call it and cover three cover four and cover six are the other 50 percent so sometimes when grantham sends heat it's tight man other times it can be pressure up front and he's dropping four or six kind of forcing a quarterback to read quickly and throw it accurately into like some of these zone windows the biggest thing here the defensive style that grantham wants requires you to win a lot of one-on-one matchups and it's always difficult to out athlete alabama so this has this this feast or famine element which I've, I've mentioned right i mean florida could win the matchup a couple drives in a row and then poof right like 70 yard explosive for bama through two games against fau and usf right who have poor offenses gators defense has given up 24 chunk plays eight plays of 20 plus So I think explosives are going to determine this side of the matchup. But if Florida has a chance, they have to get to Bryce Young. They have to make him feel uncomfortable, force him into some mistakes. His metrics under pressure are surely going to regress. They're just unsustainable right now. But if Florida can't get pressure, this game's over. The other injury here to monitor is the status of Ventrell Miller. He's Florida's starting linebacker. He is the the leader, the quarterback of the defense. He's dealing with an elbow injury. It sounds like to me, Todd, unless you have differing information, 
that he's not necessarily trending in the right direction as of now, but we'll, we will have to keep our eye on that from now. Yeah, it didn't sound like there was a high level of optimism because uh, if you read some of the quotes that were there, they were trying to figure out who could assume the responsibilities. And that's not something you're doing early in the week. If you're optimistic, that kind of caliber of player from a leadership standpoint is going to be out there. So I think it's a safe assumption to make as we sit here on Wednesday and we know things will change before kickoff on Saturday. Eventual Miller won't be out there for the game against Alabama. And you raise some real interesting points there, talking about the boomer bust mentality for Florida. And I almost think that that's the kind of approach you have to take against Alabama, because if you're going to play the bend but don't break defense against the Crimson Tide, you know you're going to be able only be able to slow them down for a limited period of time. So if you can create those havoc plays, force a turnover or two, that's a gamble you're willing to take, knowing at the risk of giving up a 70-yard explosive play over the top always looms in the back of your mind. One thing for me, Payne, that I'm curious to see in this game, can Alabama get their ground game on track? I mean, you talked about their offensive line issues and pass blocking, but I wasn't blown away with their effort against Miami trying to establish Brian Robinson, who's expected to be the next great in a long line of Alabama backs. So let's see if they can create some balance on that side of the ball. Meanwhile, for Florida, uh, I think both you and I have some skepticism about Emory Jones coming into the year. A lot of people called him a dark horse Heisman candidate, and that's probably a credit more to Dan Mullen than Emory's skill set. Suddenly, we have Anthony Richardson who goes out there and uh, has 11 carries for 275 yards, including an 80-yard run against USF. But Richardson was injured. News relatively optimistic. He was out of practice about his availability and a hamstring. And in my opinion, Payne, when you look at this Florida offense, you don't don't have that same level of skill position talent in a Kyle Pitts, a Kadarius Tony, a Kyle Trask. So I think having that change up at the quarterback position between Emery, between Richardson, knowing they have to get the ball to Jacob Copeland goes a long way if they're going to keep Alabama's stop unit off balance. I, I think you're spot on, although I don't know, you know, is it Emory Jones? Is it Anthony Richardson? Is it a mix of both? What's the rotation and snap percentage look like? They are stylistically at this point very similar. Whoever the quarterback is, I think it's pretty clear this is Bama's best defense in a couple of years, even without Christopher Allen, who's that that'll be a big loss here, not just on the production side of things, but he was kind of the, the leader. And you're going into a hostile environment. Sometimes, you know, you give up a big player too. He's the the calming effect that that the defense needs. So let's see if he's missed that way. Florida. I don't know what they are offensively. It's really interesting to me there. Bama obviously has dominated early in games with their starters on the field, giving up less than three yards per play in the first half this year. They've taken a lot of starters off the field in the second half. Obviously, that metric includes the Mercer data point where Bama held them to less than one and a half yards per play. But again, pretty impressive. Dominating inferior opponents can still help project and Alabama's defense has done that. We thought the unit was improved. We've gotten confirmation through two games that it has. Let's see what Dan Mullen comes up with. His best attribute is scheming and designing an offense, right? Calling plays. Everything else is kind of meh, This, but this is what he does. And if you listen to his presser, he's basically said all week, he's told anyone who wants to listen that he's held things back for this game. I'm not sure what those new elements look like or if Emory Jones can even execute them, but let's see. And the issue that we saw with Emory Jones coming into the year was that it was a massive downgrade from Trask in accuracy. Last year, 53% of Emory Jones' throws were accurate through two games against one defense outside the top 100 in efficiency and the other one barely inside the top 50. 
Emory Jones has been accurate on 55% of his throws. And you, you mentioned Richardson. Gator fans are are clamoring for AR-15. He looks like he's built in a lab. He can, <laughs> he's a big know, boy out there, man. And he is a big, big boy. He's, he's sprinting 10 yards and doing backflips. I mean, you know, he can run. He can throw the ball a country mile. He dropped a couple dimes last week. There was a throw where he was running left, jumped, and threw like 39 yards in the air to Copeland. And it's like, you know, he looks like Patrick Mahomes. But when you look at all the throws and not just the highlights and the wild plays, 45% accuracy rate through two games. Hasn't thrown a lot of passes, small sample. But, you know, it, we, we see the highlights and we obviously know the ceiling with Richardson's far greater than with Emory Jones. But you have to be precise against Alabama, right? Knowing the passers that that Emory and Richardson have kind of shown to be at this point, Florida's got to win the early down battle. Because if you think Emory Jones is beating Nick Saban from third and six plus, you have another thing coming. Bama has done a great job stuffing runs, especially on early downs, 25% stuff rate through two games. They've done well creating havoc with both the front seven and their defensive backs. But I think this game's pretty simple if you're watching at home. What's the third down marker say? And fortunately, because this isn't on ESPN 3 or ESPN Plus, you're going to actually be able to see that. game's actually on CBS this week. Let's hope they got the down markers working. (laughs) And so if you're watching this and it's third and five or less and Florida is bypassing a good number of third downs, they'll have a chance to stay within the number. If not, Alabama's going to win by three or four scores. The positive also for Alabama is the opposite on the injury front, right? Will Anderson status, just an absolute pressure monster. He is trending in the right direction. They thought the, the injury would be serious. They expect him back at practice today. Josh Job and, and Armore Davis both returned to practice already. So Alabama a little bit healthier on the defensive side of the ball as well. You seen anything on the total for this game? Or I mean, this that feels like the element that's as high a variance in terms of trying to assess value in the betting market as the side is here as well. I haven't, but obviously Dan Mullins has proven to have some success against Alabama's defense in the past with some of the things he does. But as you alluded to at the top, right, you know, Tony isn't walking through that door. Pitts isn't walking through that door. Trask isn't walking through that door. And so a lot of this is going to be on Emory Jones to be an accurate passer. Sure, we have seen mobile quarterbacks give Saban's defense some troubles in the past, but all those guys could also throw, right? When you think about the Johnny Manziels, they could throw the ball. Emory Jones hasn't proven that he's a consistent enough passer. And so if you're an Alabama defense who's got 37 analysts, when you kind of come up with a game plan here, it's going to be to stop the legs of the quarterbacks first and turn them into passers second, right? Like that, that that's, that's just what's, what's going to happen here. So from that perspective, I'm not quite sure how Florida's going to move the ball offensively as, as Dan Mullen alluded to maybe there's a surprise here maybe there's something on film that he has not shown yet I mean he's been in the SEC and he's been an offensive mind for 15 years so I don't know what those things could be obviously you come up with new elements in the offseason every year but I mean at this point we kind of know what Dan Mullen is offensively I don't know if he's got the horses to kind of pick Alabama apart like they did last year And then from the other perspective is, let's see what Alabama's offense is if pressure is on. There could be some boomer bust plays there. That's just how Alabama's athletes are, and that's how Florida's defensive scheme with Grantham is. So the total for me is is interesting here. I have not seen anything. Um, 
but it's not to say that that someone sharp didn't didn't go over 57 and a half here and that's that's why we're out to 59 I'm, I'm not quite sure I haven't seen it if it's if it's coming yeah very fair assessment I think uh early in the year we get good measuring stick games for teams like this and when you have one of the favorites in the west matching up with one of the secondary favorites in the east it, it should give us a pretty good indication of exactly where these two teams are this early in the season from an east-west showdown in the SEC though Payne we'll head to Big Ten country where it's north meets south but it's also a good time to remind all of our listeners to follow Payne on Twitter at Payne Insider I'm Todd Furman you can follow me there most importantly follow the podcast at bet the board pod go to also to youtube.com search bet the board subscribe to our youtube channel where there's a good chance we'll break down one of these two games on our friday pregame show as well and of course the second marquee matchup of the weekend pain that you touched on at the top of the show Penn State playing host to the Auburn Tigers. And we're looking at Penn State right now in this particular matchup. A six-point favorite at FanDuel Sportsbook. Total on the game sits at 53. It'll be a whiteout night at Beaver Stadium. Obviously an honor normally reserved for visits from Michigan or Ohio State, but they're mixing it up this year. We talked about Luke Fickle being mentioned as a head coaching candidate for the USC job. James Franklin falls into that same bucket, and he had to answer questions about it this week and some of his media availability. When you look at these games, there's no doubt that Penn State has already been battle-tested. They have a resume-defining win uh, week one where they beat Wisconsin at Camp Randall 17-16 as a six-point underdog. Meanwhile, Brian Harsin, hey, Auburn's done what you'd expect them to do against inferior opposition, but let's not kid ourselves. Akron and Alabama State aren't exactly a good indication of what this Auburn team will be. And then the 800-pound gorilla in the room that no Auburn fan wants to talk about, Payne, Road Bo Nicks. Auburn's played nobody. You you are correct. Akron, Alabama State. Akron's power rating for us is is outside the top 150 in the country when we include FCS teams. That's not very good. Alabama State out. No, Alabama State outside the top 220. <laughs> you can only play who's in front of you, and you know, flat out embarrassing bag teams isn't the most predictive, but it it still is. I mean. Auburn's exceeded odds maker expectation by an average of 12.25 points so far. So from that perspective, they've, they've shown well. The problem is, and, and you hit this perfectly, is in recent years, now I get it, it's under Gus Malzahn, a completely different coach, completely different scheme, but Auburn's offense has struggled against better competition. It's struggled on the road. And now you're pairing those two things together because you're stepping up in class against PSU, our seventh best team in the country. I'm not quite sure I love that, but just no one <laughs> else was, is. No one I was going to ask. You know, no one else. I was going to ask. No one else. You sure you're buying into PSU as seventh best team in the country? It may be by default, but it's it's by default, right? And then obviously you mentioned this. You're going on the road. Beaver Stadium, going to be a packed house, going to be a whiteout game. I don't know if you can actually say that in 2021, but that's what it's going to be. Um, <laughs> Bo Nix has been wildly inconsistent, as you mentioned, especially on the road. Four and five in true road games for his career. 13 touchdowns, 12 interceptions away from Jordan Hare. In the nine true road games, Bo Nix has eclipsed seven yards per pass attempt only twice. That was against Arkansas in 2019, who finished 88th in defensive efficiency that year, and Ole Miss last season. They finished 80th. This is a little bit of a different animal with Penn State's defense. Ranked fifth in efficiency right now. Again, my gut says they're not quite that good, but here we are. 
I do think the secondary is very good with three returning starters. Both Wisconsin and Ball State are top 50 offenses and PSU's third in coverage grade right now. So they are certainly the more battle-tested team. Bo Nix, he's played nine games against defense's top 15 in efficiency in his Auburn career. The Tigers are 2-7 and seven in those games. They've lost by an average of 9.9 points. So something to think about here. What could give Auburn's offense a chance and help Bo Nix a solid ground game? All five offensive line return. Brian Harson hasn't been content with that. He's mixed and matched linemen throughout both games, searching for the best five. He said he may do the same thing against Penn State this week. We know Bigsby is physical. He's the bell cow back. Jarquez Hunter, the freshman from Philly, great change of pace back, low to the ground, just absolute lightning. 71% of his yards are before contact. He's been untouchable playing, you know, down in competition, obviously, the first two weeks. PSU, been a little bit vulnerable along the defensive line. I thought that was kind of the area coming into the season. We weren't quite sure, obviously. You know, they're getting some great production out of the Temple transfer, but PSU gave up 0.7 EPA per rush against Wisconsin. They're 98th in PFF's run grade metric. This game can't be 100% on Bo Nix's shoulders. But ultimately, Bo does need to be more consistent. Far too many lulls and, and, and lows over the career. You know, even last week. We talked off air about this against Alabama and AM. Sure, there was a couple drops, but that's the perfect time to come out, work on things. It's not about blowing out Alabama AM. Like, let's kind of figure out what the offense is. Let's get Bo Nix comfortable within it. Let's get him going through his progressions. He starts the game one for four, finished nine for 17. 10% of his throws were turnover worthy against Alabama State. And so, you know, you're kind of just left scratching your head. Is, is this kid going to ever be consistent? Is he ever going to be able to find a floor that's reasonable? And honestly, what makes this game so interesting, Todd, is there's a ton of variance in the game with quarterbacks like Knicks and Clifford who do have these really low lows. And you can kind of see them sometimes get down on themselves when things aren't going great. And both are learning brand new systems in their third game in those systems. And so that's going to be the interesting part here. Now, core number on this game, Penn State minus 5.8, so not much value. But ultimately, I, I think it comes down to which quarterback makes fewer mistakes, and ultimately that's probably the team that wins and covers. You know, maybe it's time, Payne, that uh, SEC fan bases start making T-shirts that say, Bo knows road woes, and see if they can get those things selling at a decent clip. You mentioned, by the way, Jacquez Hunter, the kid from Philadelphia, Mississippi. I I was blown away when I dug into some of his high school numbers. When you're breaking Marcus Dupree's high school record for touchdowns, that says something about your ability level, and yes, his uh, 15 yards per carry through the first two games, probably not sustainable. Uh, When you start taking on SEC competition. The one thing for Auburn, you talked about it, how it needing to be a balanced attack. Wisconsin did have a modest level of success running against Penn State, uh, but that was brute force. I mean, they ran for more than 200 yards if you back out Graham Mertz's sack yardage, but it took him nearly 50 carries to do so. And when you look at Penn State defensively, Brandon Smith and P.J. Mustafer have been outstanding. So if they can force Auburn into known passing situations, uh, it's not going to be a pleasant road debut for Brian Harsin's bunch. On the other side of the ball, Payne, I think you and I have kind of been waiting for Penn State to show some of Mike Yurich's or Yursich. I'm always going to butcher his name until I hear it a hundred times. Some of his DNA uh, operating with pace and tempo. We didn't see 
a lot of that, if at all, against Ball State last week in a game where Penn State really could be rather vanilla. I thought the game would be a little bit closer. They, of course, win the game 44-13. to When you look at Penn State offensively, you talked about Sean Clifford, uh, a mercurial sort under center. The one comment that Auburn has made multiple times in some of the press conferences and, you know, the media availability, Harsey knows he's got to pay special attention to Parker Washington and Jahan Dotson. Yes. And, you know, the thing that really stood out to me last week was it's almost like Penn State's offense went the opposite of what Auburn's offense did. I thought Sean Clifford got some good work in last week. It, it was clear that there was this plan for him not to just like take off when the first look wasn't there. Yursich made him go through his progressions. And reading some of the articles and watching the postgame pressers, Yursich wanted to prepare Clifford for the weeks ahead, right? It wasn't necessarily about pummeling the 100th best defense in Ball State into submission. He wanted Clifford to kind of work through the progressions and just not tuck the ball at the first sign of trouble because he knew it could potentially help down the line for games like this against Auburn. And so it just feels like those two are on the same page with Yursich and Clifford. They're, they seem to be doing some things that both like. When we broke down that Wisconsin game in week one, I said, Yursich needs to increase his, his normal rate of play action now that he has Clifford. And because the splits there were just dramatically better with play action than without. Now all of a sudden, through two weeks, we're up to a 39% play action rate. 11% more than Yursich used at Texas last season. Clifford's done a good job protecting the ball. Hasn't made a single turnover-worthy throw despite playing, you know, Jim Leonard's defense. And the kicker, through two games, 21% of Clifford's throws have been 20-plus yards. He's throwing deep now. Last year, that number was 9%. And saying all that, here's where the matchup gets a little interesting because you have Yursich against Derek Mason. And the offenses that Yursich run are RPO-based They have some spread concepts, as you alluded to. They have some tempo, although not as much this year. Are they waiting to break it out against better competition? Has James Franklin said, hey, like, let's not put our defense in poor positions and go at a normal rate of tempo? We'll see. Again, the offense operates with some outside zone, some wide zone run schemes, okay? The reason Derek Mason became a hot commodity and kind of catapulted into the Vanderbilt job was because his final two years at Stanford, his defenses did a number when they faced offenses with pace and spread RPO concepts that Oregon ran. And at the time, those two games came in 2012 and 2013. In 2012, Chip Kelly was still at Oregon. 2013, he wasn't, but Oregon was still ranked second in the country both those times, and Stanford beat Oregon twice. Derek Mason's defense, which was built to stop tempo, spread, RPO, and outside zone, held Marcus Mariota in Oregon to 34 total points in two games. And so when Yersich was hired at Oklahoma State, one of the headlines I found and and went back and was like searching for 10-year-old articles this week, the headline was, OSU football remains on the Oregon Trail. And so the principles and concepts are very similar to what Yersich and Oregon ran and what Derek Mason was able to kind of stifle. So this is going to be a real cat and mouse game between Yersich and Mason. It actually may come down to a game that's decided more by the coaches and the X's and O's than the Jimmys and Joes, okay? 
And so let's see if Derek Mason can do enough to stop another spread RPO wide zone run scheme and Bo Nix can play to a normal floor and not have these really low lows. And I think ultimately that will decide this game. You know, it's one of those interesting matchups. I feel we don't get enough of these in college football. The trend, obviously, when you get two prestigious programs like this, they always do battle on a neutral field. And while it's great to see the Georgias against Clemson's week one and the Alabama-Miamis, I love the idea that Auburn's got the guts to go on the road into unfamiliar territory and play a true road game against Penn State. Hopefully this is a sign of things to come, especially with an expanded college football playoff, because this will truly be an electric atmosphere. And I have to love the fact that every Everything coming out of Auburn's camp is that they're relishing this opportunity to do something that a lot of kids won't. And while it's not going to be the Iron Bowl or anything close, it's still one of the more iconic venues in college football. Oh, it's a great place to play. And we're going to see what Auburn is. Obviously, you know, you're replacing every aspect of the coaching staff. And to this point, Harson and the players have said the right things. The players have bought in. But this is just a different animal. This isn't Akron. This isn't Alabama State. It's on the road against Penn State, team that uh, has some cohesion. It's going to be a ridiculous venue at night. And so this is just a different task here for Auburn. And, you know, you always look at these games, and certainly Penn State is far more battle-tested. When you go on the road week one with a brand-new OC and you pull out a win, regardless of how it transpired – you're going to be more battle-tested for a game like this. You can be honest, Payne, and share with our listeners that you were hoping that there were going to be three feet of snow on the ground at Beaver Stadium to really make this game that much more aesthetically pleasing while you sat there in your boxer shorts in South Florida and watched it Saturday night. Wouldn't have minded some, you know, nice little 22-mile-an-hour brisk crosswind (laughs) across the 50. Wouldn't have minded a little snow. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the only that. reason I can make that joke, I've been to one SEC football game in my entire life, and it was an Auburn-Georgia game. It is still the coldest recorded kickoff temperature for a Georgia home game in league play. I think it was 26 degrees when they welcomed in Auburn. Um, so it will not be forgotten on me anytime soon. Something I grew up with going to Northwestern games, not necessarily what I expected in the SEC. But all right, two big game breakdowns. Four key factors in the other marquee games. Want to appreciate all of you, our loyal Bet the Board listeners, who voted in our poll. We'll try and incorporate, you know, some of those elements on weeks where the schedule looks a little bit dicier. Obviously, as we get into the nuts and bolts, uh, we'll pick the biggest games as we've done over the years to try and include those. But if there's a fringe candidate, we want to know the games that you guys want to hear us break down. So appreciate that. As Cincinnati, Indiana was the runaway winner this week, we were still able to sneak in the Michigan State Miami game, which came up second in that poll. Want to encourage all of you, our loyal listeners, to go to fanduel.com backslash bet the board. Take advantage of generous sign up bonuses. Make sure you give yourself another extremely valuable out this football season. There's no reason to ever take a bad number, especially when FanDuel is available in a state near you. Payne, one final uh, order of business to transact here. And of course, uh, everyone knows where we're going. It is, of course, our investable component uh, of this fine program. Not like everything else you can't use to make a few extra dollars. But where are you seeing opportunity and upside as it pertains to a best bet for college football week three? You know, this is a little bit tougher of a board to navigate. Don't necessarily love anything. But I will say this. We, we talked off air. You know, I do obviously lean towards this PSU-Auburn under 
it does make me a little nervous that Yursich hasn't quite broken out the tempo yet, and that could be a thing. Let's go to rotation number 145. The Florida State Seminoles plus the points. I think for the pers- you know point of this show, let's call it five and a half. There is some six out there. This is effectively Florida State season. This is effectively, I think, going to be quite telling for this current regime. And if this game were played last week, this line would be Wake Forest minus two. And so you're getting great value and what should be an all-in effort here from Florida State. And I think they're going to be refocused. It was still a team that was up 10 driving late against Jacksonville State and then just kind of crapped the bed. I think we're going to see a little bit more form with what Florida State wants to be offensively. I think the eye on the prize, which is getting their first win, not starting the season 0-3 is going to be the key focal point throughout practice this week. I am hearing through the first couple days, everyone is fully intent. They are jacked up. They're wired in. And so I think we see a game effort here. If we don't, then this is going to be pretty ugly for Florida State moving forward. Obviously, parts of their schedule have gotten a little bit softer moving forward when you look at a guy like Yurkovich going out for B.C., Miami not looking its best, a couple other key injuries to NC State, and obviously there were some key injuries to Wake Forest, Todd. I know that was a team that you liked coming into the season, and then suddenly, poof, before the year, three key cogs are out, one of the best weapons on offense, one of the best defensive players, and so Wake Forest hasn't looked the best through two games, and I just think the number here, in a week where I don't necessarily love anything, let's play the number for a desperate team in a big spot. And so when you can take five and a half in a game that should probably have been one and a half or two last week, I think that makes oh, sense. I can't wait. I can't wait for folks that are listening to this podcast to come out and call you a homer. But let me be the first one to defend pain for anyone that even wants to insinuate that we do things based on biases around here. You guys couldn't be further from the truth. The only thing that we root for on a week in week out basis is money when we're invested. So save your breath there for the homer dialogue. Leave that to me to bust pain's balls for the top of the show. And before we close up shop. Yeah, I mean that that's my 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 favorite team is is the one that I bet on. My loyalty <laughs> is to the bankroll. And so again, it's just one of those things where you know, they're the laughing stock of college football right now losing to Jacksonville State. That play has been on every broadcast, news feed, social media channel. And because of that, you know, we're 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 getting value here in Florida State in a spot that this might be the biggest game in this coaching staff's regime to this point. I really think it's that important. You start 0-3, trouble ahead. You're going to start losing some recruits. You know, Nobody knows who the heck Jacksonville State is on the recruiting trail. Half these college kids don't even watch college football, or, or half the high school kids, rather, don't even watch college football. And But you lose to Wake Forest. That's a name they know, and they know it's you know at the lower to middle tier of the ACC. So huge game for the program here, and we're getting some value 
uh, as well. You know, I don't want anybody to feel bad for me, Payne, by any stretch of the imagination, but to put things in perspective, when the two college football programs I root for week in, week out for two of those that are closest to me during football season, both have embarrassing efforts. One being Florida State losing outright as a four touchdown favorite against Jacksonville State and my lovely fiance's alma mater losing outright to Stanford as a 17 point favorite. It was not the most pleasant Saturday evening dealing with her downstairs and some of your angry text messages. So let's hope Florida State gets a result win here and USC can go on the road in Pullman and knock off Washington State for my own sanity and well-being. When that happens, do you just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go to the local team. I'm going to check out some UNLV football. That should help my sports. Uh, no, I watch I watch more UNLV football week one against Eastern Washington than I'll openly admit. One thing I will say, though, is uh, UNLV football fans not exactly optimistic about the home field environment they're going to be able to create this weekend for Iowa State's arrival. I think Allegiant Stadium is opening the upper deck because there was such an increased demand for those folks wanting to get out of Ames to come exorcise some demons uh, in the wake of that Cyhawk loss. <laughs> so I have to imagine it will be a sea of gold and red there so if you're looking to build a home field advantage for UNLV for those folks out there probably would not be a prudent decision now thankfully in my household it got a little better on Sunday with the Steelers upsetting Buffalo so there was a silver lining there but all right we anytime you can upgrade aims for Vegas and use the excuse of football you you just got to do it and to your point I did see a little sharp money come in on the Cyclones, minus 29 and a half. Yeah, everyone wants to eulogize Matt Campbell and Brock Purdy uh, already, but dig into that box score. 400 to 170 was the final statistical breakdown. Sure, they lost the game 27-17, but I don't think all is lost on the Clones just yet. Uh, I want to thank all of you guys. Are Have you seen that joke, by Which the way? joke? Surfacing through, through the interwebs that uh, Brock Purdy's QBR to this point in the season, uh, if, if it were a female... Would not be legal. <laughs> that, that that's not exactly a ringing endorsement for a quarterback. Uh, what about two years ago? People were talking about as a potential number one overall pick in the draft. Ugly start. So, Ugly start. You'll see. But that's why they play the games, and that's why teams have a chance to go out there and still win their conference when you drop an ugly non-conference game. But. Want to remind everyone, follow Payne on Twitter, at Payne Insider. Follow me there as well, at Todd Furman. Again, most importantly, follow the podcast, at Bet the Board Pod. Go to YouTube, search Bet the Board, subscribe to our YouTube channel. The Bet the Board pregame show, episode two, will be available on Friday. We'll have some college football content on there along with the National Football League. And regardless of where you choose to invest this weekend, but especially with ticket number 145, Florida State plus five and a half in your pocket, we'll see you at the window. Thanks for listening to Bet the Board. You can catch Todd and Payne every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday during football season, breaking down the biggest NFL and college football games. And to make sure you don't miss any free best bets, subscribe to Bet the Board on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on Carol. She's more focused on hitting a high note than the car in front of her. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates Northbrook, Illinois.